0: Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. In this episode, we talk about the ancient kingdom of Jin and the formation of the proto-three kingdoms of Samhan. In our last episode, we followed the Goguryeo kingdom from its founding around the first century BCE to its resurgent return to power in 313 when it defeats the Han Chinese and drives them out of power from the Korean peninsula for the final time. We ended in 313 because that was a convenient spot for us to stop before launching into what's known as the Three Kingdoms period of Goguryeo, Shila, and Baekje. But hold on. We're not quite ready to talk about these Three Kingdoms yet. Because before there was a Three Kingdoms, there was a Three Kingdoms. Before Goguryeo, Shila, and Baekje. There was actually another period in which three distinct kingdoms or two states to be more precise ruled southern korea so we got to rewind the clock for a bit the reason we have to stop at 313 and go backwards is because up until now we've done a credible job of painting a picture of how Goguryeo formed we know about all the indigenous koreans that lived in the northern part of korea manchuria and laodong peninsula we know about the battles between the eastern Yan kingdom Of China and the unified Chinese Han Empire against the Yemek, the Okja, the Goja-sons, etc. You recognize all of these from past episodes. But the last time we directly covered the geographic area in which Shila and Baekje formed, it was 400 BCE, and the Koreans were just discovering metal. But just like in the north, a ton of history happened. They just aren't as well covered in the histories. So we're backing up and going back to 400 BCE and taking a look at what was going on in the southern half of the peninsula up until 300 CE. The reason is because Goguria is in the north, whereas Bekcha and Shila are parts of the southern peninsula, which we haven't really covered yet. So we're rewinding the clock and going back along an alternate line of history Going to take a, we're going to take a look at what happened in the southern part of the peninsula from around 400 BCE up until around 313 CE, CE at which point we will then merge the stories and we could continue onward, um, having given due attention to each of the three kingdoms, Goguryeo, Shilla, and Baekje. So that's how we get to this naming convention that causes all types of confusion regarding the three kingdoms. So Goguryeo, Shilla, and Baekje may be the first things you think about when we talk about the three kingdoms of Korea. But around 300 years earlier, there was another period in time in which the southern part of Korea was divided into three kingdoms, or more precisely, confederacies. We're talking about the states of Mahan, Jinhan, and Byanhan. To distinguish these two periods, we call these the proto-Three Kingdoms period. It's considered proto-history because there are no surviving written leco- records from the inhabitants themselves, although there's plenty of coverage by the Chinese historians of the day. These three states occupied maybe the lower two-third portion of modern-day South Korea, encompassing the agricultural, economic, and political powerhouse provinces of Chungcheongdo, Jeollado, Gyeongsangdo, and not to mention Gyeonggi-do, which is where modern-day Seoul is. And I'm sure you'll recognize the name Han, which of course is different from Han, China, and the modern-day name for South Korea, which is Daehan Minguk. We'll talk about this in a minute. I loved studying Southern Korea for this episode because it has such a different feeling for me. The study of Goguryeo and Gojo-san feels like Winterfell in the White Walkers, with apologies to Game of Thrones fans. It's basically the true north. It's Siberian winters, barren plains, huge mountainous terrain, hordes of bandits on horseback. I'm constantly reminded of the Okja. If you look at the eastern coast of Korea, it's extremely mountainous and inhospitable. But along the extreme northeastern edge is a thin strip of arable land. And that's where the Okja settled. I covered this in a a prior episode. Luckily for them, they were able to become an agrarian society. But unluckily for them, they were just a little too north for comfort, because right across a mountain range that boxed them in against the sea lived all the semi-nomadic tribes, including the people that eventually became Gogurians, uh, who didn't have enough land to feed themselves. And so quickly, the Ye tribes would make Okja their food source through force. It made the Gogurians tougher, to be sure, and that's how they built an empire with a landmass much larger than their southern counterparts, But it was a tough life. It was constant encroachment by outsiders, including the mighty Chinese and the people of the steppes. The people are tough and hardy. Of course, I'm way over-romanticizing this, but there's got to be an element of truth to it, right? Life in Southern Korea must have been just a tad more easier. We're talking rich, fertile agricultural plains, sedentary farming villages that turn into towns, milder winters and hot summers. You're going to hear me use this analogy a lot, but studying the Samhan is like studying an organism growing in its natural element. It's Korea insulated from the interference of outside forces. It's organic growth from within. Yes, there was war, but it was in it was between neighboring states. I think it's important to talk in depth about Samhan, because even to this day, the average person of Korean descent, even in Korea, will trace their lineage back to Shila or Baekje with pride. I grew up in the States, and if I had a dollar for every Korean restaurant that had Shila in its name, I'd be retired by now. And not to take anything away from Shila, which was, which we're going to cover in due course and which was a phenomenal kingdom, but as you'll sur- soon learn, there wouldn't be a Shilla without the Samhan. A lot of the industry and characteristics of Shila, a lot of the strength that made Shila a great kingdom, were a direct result of socio-political forces and innovation from the Jinhan period. It's like you've traced your lineage back to Locke and Rousseau, but you have the opportunity to trace it even further back to the even more prestigious ancient Greeks, who were in turn the inspirations for them. Shout out to the fans of enlightenment out there. But to be fair, people aren't ignoring the Samhan on purpose. As I'll describe later in this episode, the study of Samhan has evolved quite recently, and it wasn't until the 90s that archaeologists unearthed key Samhan artifacts, so even in Korean language sources, the latest perspective of Samhan is quite new, and perhaps hasn't hit primary or secondary textbooks yet. As for English language sources, forget about it. Like you, my first resource is Google search, and I can tell you the resources on Samhan online are scant. Luckily. I rely heavily on Mark Byington's excellent early Korea series, and you've heard that name before. I, I rely on him quite a lot, and in particular on a chapter written by Yi hyun of Harim University. Honestly, without that publica- publication, this episode wouldn't exist. So, if you get anything from this episode, it will be a newfound appreciation for where the for where the better known Shilla and Baekje kingdoms come from. Samhan should be as well known as Baekje and Shila, and we can get the word out. Who knows? Maybe someday we'll start to see restaurants named Jinhan. You never know. If you listen to past episodes, you know that we covered the development of Gojo-san, the Han Commanderies, Goguryeo, and all of this actually occurred in the northern part of the Korean Peninsula, and sometimes most of it actually occurred north of what is, you know, today South Korea. But as we had talked about in our prehistoric episodes, in a way, the southern part of Korea was more interesting during this time because instead of really large dominant forces like the Goguryeans, there were many more tribes that developed along the rich agricultural patchwork that is southern Korea. We talked about Gojoseon and Goguryeo first because from a geopolitical point of view, they were more important to state formation in Korea's later years. And we use the term state specifically to describe the general way in which modern societies categorize ancient civilizations, for example, to how well they conform to the dominant culture's version of civilization. And as we all know, history is written by the victors, right? By that measure, Gojoseon and Goguryeo advanced first. They were first exposed to developed civilizations like China. They were the first to be recognized by such outsiders as states. And they were the first to incorporate language, ideas, and technology from the outside world. And from a practical standpoint, there's just more written about them. The Chinese historians wrote a lot and much more often about the Northerners, um, sometimes for pretty obvious reasons. It's because the northern states were just closer to China. So there's just more interaction. The South, however, remains to this day an an enigma by comparison. Don't get me wrong, there's tons of stuff in Korean language on all the new social media like YouTube with professors and students of history talking in depth about what's going on in the South. But as far as outsiders are concerned, as far as English language speakers are concerned, not as much coverage on it. And certainly from other states' point of view, for example, China and Japan. They're going to pay more attention to the northern kingdoms because they ultimately were the ones that would affect the 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 course of modern korean history a bit more but from what i've read up until very recently historians relied on two sources for the southern kingdoms or the samhan the first of course was the chinese records principally the sanguoshi and to a second extent uh, the hohan shu and the second was a samguk sagi which we know was compiled by Korean historians in the 12th century, using older Korean records, which we believe have we which we believe have been lost to history, up until the late 20th century, and understandably so, Korean historians had defaulted to the Samguk Sagi, which states that Baekje and Silla gained control of the Samhan region from 57 to 18 BCE. This was always in contrast to the Chinese Sangogi and Ho Hanshu which described the Samhan as still existing as of the 3rd century CE. Recent archaeological evidence seems to corroborate the Chinese records over the Samguk Sagi, and today the common view among Korean historians is that the Samhan lasted much longer than originally thought. And this goes towards my point uh, at the top of the episode about how, you know, part of the reason why Samhan isn't as well known, even in Korea, is that we're just finding out now. That it existed 300 years longer than what we originally thought. So the old school Korean historians were almost religious in sticking to the Samguk Sagi. I mean, after all, it is a indigenous publication by Korean historians. But it was written, you know, in the 13th century. You know, um, many, many, many centuries after the actual fact. Whereas these Chinese histories were written, um, what 100, 200 years after the fact. So. Uh, you know, with the passage of time, um, it's much easier for uh, historians and scientists to take a more unbiased view of the evidence out there. So the question remains, who were the Samhans? To answer that question, we have to t- talk about an even more ancient peoples, the Jin people or jinguk in Korean. In fact, in order to trace their history from the beginning, we have to go back to the third episode of the season. When we covered the Mumun pottery cultures that inhabited the southern half of the peninsula. Before the 3rd century BCE, before even Gojoseon became a state and Gogurians had formed, the Korean peninsula was inhabited during the Iron Age by tribes who gradually merged with each other into confederations sharing common cultures. At some point in the 4th century BCE, these tribes coalesced enough to form the makings of a state, Reasonable historians will disagree on how sophisticated this state was, but the clearest material evidence is the baduk-style dolmens that are widely distributed across the region, so-called baduk, uh, due to the smooth, polished stone rocks which they're made out of. Baduk is essentially the Korean word for Chinese chess, or go. And when you play Chinese chess, those little pieces of the white and black round, you know, um, stones, as it were, are very smooth and polished. These are truly the early days of civilization in Korea. Jin's contemporaries included the Okja in Northeast Korea, who would later be subjugated by Goguryeo, and the Ye tribe occupying where Goguryeo would eventually be formed. North of the Ye were the Buya. And side note in a prior episode, we described the thin strip of arable land hugging the northeastern coastline on which the Okja eked out a meager and miserable. Um, I would say farming existence only to have their harvest taken by the belligerent Ye tribes who would eventually form Goguryeo. How much easier must life have been in the southern farmlands of Chungcheongdo? Jin is first referenced in the record books in the second century BCE. It's just one line in the account of Joseon um, in the Shiji, which is the record of the Grand Scribe, but it has extraordinary implications because in one stroke of the pen, um, it's legitimizing, perhaps, an entire civilization. At this time, Wemon Joseon occupied the Daedonggang River Basin, and Jin sent a communication to Han China seeking to open direct communication between the two, um, suggesting Jin's strong desire to participate in China's metal culture. Here's a translation of the Shiji by Byington. Quote, The Jin state, located next to Jinban, submitted a petition to seek an audience with the Han emperor, but due to the obstruction of Ging Ugo of weimanjou Joseon, however, they were unsuccessful. Unquote. If you've had exposure to ancient writing, you know how precious each word can be because these were written thousands of years ago and there aren't going to be any more histories that we know of. And that's compounded by the fact that Chinese in particular is such a sparse and densely packed language that each character is carefully considered by the right by the author. So in this one entry, we know that the Jin was considered a state, that it was organized and had enough recognition to be able to submit a petitioner to the emperor. But Wiman Joseon blocked this direct relationship as the regional hegemon for all international trade. Jin was next referenced in the Chinese histories with respect to immigration. Because Weimon's trade blockade didn't stop the flow of Gojoseon refugees fleeing south to the Jin and bringing along their metallurgy skills. In fact, when Weimon Joseon usurped the throne of Gojoseon, the usurped king, King Jun, is recorded to have fled to Jin with his followers. Furthermore, the ji also records a high official of Gojoseon named Yeukgyegyung, who flees to the Jin before Wiman Joseon is defeated by the Chinese Han, bringing along 2,000 households? These records are important because we're still in the stage of proto history, and so there are still reasonable debates over whether Jin was a proper state or kingdom or not. So, how does Jin relate to the later referenced Samhan states? We start with a statement from the Ho Hanshu that the three Han states formally comprised the Jin polity. But with new evidence, we dig a bit further and find a bit more nuance to that storyline. Maybe it wasn't as simple as Jin being the progenitor to the Samhan. Currently, there are three prevailing theories. One, Jin is a land which King Jun governed after a southward migration or escape, shall we say. So King Jun being the ruler of uh, Gojoseon before We Man uh, took over, uh, flees with his, presumably with his household and a bunch of other his followers, with all the kind of knowledge that you would get from uh, being close to the uh, Chinese civilization and settling within uh, the land, and that essentially becomes Jin. The second theory is the coexistence of Jin and Han, wherein Jin was located in present-day Gyeonggi-do and Han was in uh, Chungcheong and Jeolla. That second theory would vastly reduce the area of Jin from all of southern Korea to just a small part of Mahan, but which we'll cover in a second. Regardless, the historical evidence clearly shows that Jin was an entity to be dealt with um, and that traded frequently with China and or Joseon. Thus, there should be lots of artifacts indicative of trade in the late 2nd century. However, so far, we've only found such evidence in Chungcheong province, lending some credence to the second theory. I quote from historian Yi, according to archaeological data, Jin appears to have been a confederacy composed of individual polities represented by the slender bronze dagger culture and bound together by religious authority and a trade network of bronze implements, Unquote. We're going to use that word confederacy a lot when we talk about Samhan, and uh, it is used purposely, especially in relation to a kingdom or a state. Historian E writes that the direct cause of Jin's demise was its conflict with Wiman Joseon, which we just mentioned. Wiman Joseon had blocked Jin's access to China, and because Joseon at the time controlled all the land and sea routes from the peninsula to, uh, to China, all material flow seemed to cease. This was a major factor in the decline in bronze production within Jin, thereby damaging its economic capacity and thus ruining its ability to hold together as a confederation. Another contributing factor was an increase in migrants leaving Wiman Joseon. After King Ugo of Wiman took a stand against Emperor Wu of China, those in opposition to the king fled southward. As we've discussed before, these Joseon people were much more advanced than the Jin people with respect to metallurgy and other skills, and that must have contributed to the general upheaval of that time and ultimately contributed to Jin's fall. And as we'll be discussing Later, uh, this episode or next, we're going to talk about the kind of the basic unit of unit of a statelet in the southern Korea at the time, and you and uh, it's it's fairly it's carefully composed of towns and statelets, and you can imagine an influx of migrants, especially kind of well-educated, let's say, migrants that are just from a more sophisticated area of the country, um, flooding into your neighborhood, and you can imagine the kind of upheaval that would cause. Stepping back for a second, we have a picture of an early state that gets far less attention than its northern counterpart of Gojoseon, and this goes towards my point at the top of the episode, we need to pay more attention to Samhan because it's just as mar- much a part of Korean history as the the prestigious kingdoms of Gojoseon and uh, Goguryeo. But essentially, when Wiman Joseon fell to the Han Chinese, that caused a ripple effect that eventually toppled the Jin in the south. And again, this is the idea of interconnectivity. As insulated as Southern Korea might have been, relatively speaking, to all the geopolitical events occurring as far away as, you know, China, um, they were still vulnerable to the winds of change. Whether... That kingdom encompassed all of the south or just the western region encompassing Chungcheongdo, seems still to be something debated by historians. Nevertheless, Jin was an important polity that we are discovering more about today. Korean historians estimate that the Jin state lasted from around the 4th century BCE to shortly after wiman Joseon fell to Han China in 108 BCE. As you remember, that caused a ripple effect that actually may have toppled Jin. Around that time, there were 78 statelets, quote-unquote, identified by the Chinese in Southern Korea. So here's where we come upon an extremely important term that we're going to be using a lot in this episode and future episodes. The term statelet is a very carefully considered translation of the underlying word first used by the Chinese observers at the time. The Chinese characters literally spell small country, but of course the denotation is much more nuanced. The authors used this very deliberately to distinguish it from a village or city or town, and it's well worth our attention to dig into this a bit. The best way I can describe it is to compare it to evolution. A good analogy of the story of state formation in southern Korea is the evolution of an organism. The smallest unit we're talking about here is a village. We don't know precisely how many people lived in a village on average in this region, but a collection of villages made up a town, and we do know that the average town had around 500 to 1,000 households, or approximately 2,500 to 5,000 people. Some towns had walls, some did not. There were core villages and natural villages within a town, so the core villages were a little larger and much more structured, whereas I'm guessing villages are probably just outshoots of collections of houses and huts in the surrounding um, uh, natural surrounding. And a typical arrangement looked like a neural network. Again, the organic analogy at play here. So if you look at a picture of Sado, for example, which we're going to be discussing in a uh, in a future episode, Sado was one of the um, prominent statelets in Jinhan. If you look at a diagram of that, and you know, still to this day, people are um, starting to unearth more artifacts from that, from that area. Um, It looks like, you know, it looks like a neural network, you have a capital town, which is Sado. And then you have all these kind of line, which could represent a road, or it could just represent some type of relationship being drawn to all these other core villages around it, concentrically. And then within the natural villages, you have these tinier dots of representing, um, I'm sorry, around the core villages, you have these tinier dots representing natural vid- uh, uh, natural villages, and they all kind of relate to each other uh, to form what is a town. The story of the formation of Samhan is one in which tiny independent single-celled organisms, the villages, evolved into multicellular organisms, the towns, which then evolved into larger statelets which then evolved into confederations of statelets. And finally, these confederations banded together to become the proto-states of Mahan, Jinhan, and Byunhan. Again, the the evolution of an organi- uh, organism is really apt here, I think. But where this analogy falls apart is how to fit Jin into the picture. What we do know is that the basic building blocks of Jin were most likely similar to those of Samhan. In other words, this statelet structure may have predated Samhan during the Jin era in other words Jin was the first large confederation or maybe even state depending on your definition that these statelets first formed into it was the outward forces of the Chinese commanderies that broke these statelets apart um, into separate organisms but perhaps a DNA or the blueprint for that evolutionary process remained thus facilitating them to morph and regroup again into these three statelets. Among the Samhan statelets, we can identify the specific location of a few, including, and we'll describe more in detail in the next episode, um, the differences between the three Hans. But within Jinhan, there was Sado, which I just talked about. That's present-day Gyeongju, which is a very historic city um, on the uh, southeastern part of uh, Korea. In Byanhan, we have um, a, a... um, statelet called Guya and a statelet called Anya. Guya was actually Gimhae, which is near Busan. It's a port city. And then Anya is present-day Haman. Uh, we have Dongno, which eventually became Busan. And Goja Midong, which um, is the present-day uh, Gosang. In Mahan, we have Baekje, which eventually becomes basically Seoul. And Gonma, which is present-day Iksan. And so finally, we can talk about Samhan. And before we get into that, let's talk about the word Han. First of all, Samhan basically means three Han, Sam being the Korean word for three. So that's simple enough, but it gets a lot more complicated. The confusion that Han creates, this very common syllable, um, to English language speakers can't be um, underestimated. First, there is the Han Empire of China, which in the Korean alphabet, and in the Roman alphabet, is spelled the same as in Korea, uh, Han Korea, but the underlying Chinese characters and the etymology are completely different. So they happen to be homonyms in Romaji in, in uh, Roman characters and in Hangul, but actually in the underlying Chinese are two def- totally different words. Um, causing more confusion is the use of Han to refer to the Samhan, as we are discussing here, and to the other three kingdoms of Goguryeo, Silla, and Baekje. So we'll be talking about this period soon enough, but starting in the 7th century in Korea, people started to refer to Goguryeo and Baekje as Samhan. I don't think historians are doing that anymore just because it causes so much confusion, but it's out there, so you're going to see that in the literature. Unfortunately, the use of Han to refer to all things Korean persists probably from the 7th century, at least in S- South Korea, you know. I can't really speak for what's going on in North Korea, to be honest. I'm I'm just as much in the dark as you are. But in South Korea, Han is now used very generically to refer not just to like Southern Korea, but to all things Korean. So Hangul is the Korean language, which, you know, South Koreans don't have a monopoly on, right? It's the exact same language that the people in the North speak. But the Koreans speak it Hangul. Uh, They name their country Daanminguk, which kind of makes sense because Han should refer... At the very least, to the southern portion of the peninsula, but as is a tendency, I'm sure in North Korea as well, South Koreans tend to use South Korea and Korea interchangeably. So they're going to name all types of thing after all types of things after Han, and you know causes a lot of confusion. In North Korea, I know they're using the word Joseon much more, which again is kind of fitting. But I'm sure people in both of those nations are. Um, um, representing all of Korea, the the culture and ethnicity, which causes confusion. No one is sure of the ultimate root word of the word, uh, root of the word Han. But linguist Alexander Vovin suggests this word is related to the Mongolian Khan and Manchurian Han, meaning ruler, and that the ultimate origin is Shangnu and Yeniseian. Whatever the case may be. It is generally agreed that Han was first used during the Samhan period, uh, Mahan, Jinhan, and Bianhan, and may have been used by the Gojoseon to refer to all the people living south of them on the peninsula. Getting back to our chronology, we have to step back to around 108 BCE, again when Wimanzoseon was conquered by Han China. Um, that would send ripple effects, that would eventually bring the fall of the Jin state which then reverted or maybe transformed into around 78 identifiable statelets. Somewhere after that time, approximately between the 1st century BCE and 3rd century CE, which is a l- lengthy period of time, these statelets reconfigured again into three confederations called Mahan, Jinhan, and Byanhan. Historian Yi writes that, quote, The ethnic and cultural foundation of the Samhan originates in the slender bronze dagger culture, or... Sehyang Dongam Munhwa or early Iron Age in the Korean Peninsula. Unquote. Eventually, the states of Baekje, Silla, and Gaya would eventually evolve out of these three confederacies. Historian E writes that prior to modern academic research in Korea, the focus was on finding the geographic location of these statelets. But starting in the seventies, state formation became the focus, with historians intently studying early records such as the Samguk Sagi. However, since the 1990s, archaeologists have excavated an enormous amount of material evidence. And at the present time, they are the ones leading research into Samhan. And again, this goes to the point that I made at the top of the episode about why maybe Samhan isn't as well known uh, within Korea in general. But, you know, um, it is getting better known. And if you were to look up YouTube, search in Hangul, you're going to see a fair amount of uh, videos come up this makes sense because as epically important and precious as the Samguk Sagi is, it was compiled many centuries after the fact. One reason why there has historically been more focus on the northern states of Gojos and Goguryeo might be that while Samhan did exist contemporaneously with them, it was perhaps a bit earlier in its development. E writes that, quote, The level of political development of each polity varied slightly. In terms of their political organization, Samhan culture was in the process of developing from the incipient state or walled town state to the territorial state or confederated kingdom, while on the socio-cultural level, it was in transition from bronze culture to full-fledged iron culture. Unquote. This may sound like I'm kind of walking back from how I talked about how sophisticated and large Jin and, by extension, Samhan was, but what we're doing is we're actually more refining our our view of what kind of entity jin and samhan were to give you a sense of the size of samhan um i quote again from historian e quote we can estimate the collective population figure of the samhan in the mid 3rd century as 100 to 200,000 households or 750 to a million people 750,000 to a million people the average population of each statelet was 2,000 to 3,000 households, or 10,000 to 15,000 people, unquote. A million people, that's pretty big. As a comparison, the Lelong Commandery um, in 2 AD, admittedly this is like, you know, several centuries before, had around 400,000 people. Um, as a better comparison, the population of England in the fourth century, so roughly the exact same time as what we're talking about, was 3.6 million, while Japan in 400 CE was about 1.5 million. So Samhan was not a small state, it was a, a really large state at the time. Given how early this time period is, and the lack of records, we are tempted to lump sum all these three states together, but each of these three states had a distinct character that is apparent from the source data, as well as archaeological evidence. So we'll stop there in the interest of time. In our next episode, we're going to take a detailed look at the three Hans and learn how they differed from each other. We'll also have a really good chronology of how each Samhan develops um, from around you know BCE to around 313 CE. We'll also read directly from the Ho Hanshu and get a really good look at what the Samhan people looked like, how they behaved, and what they did day to day. So, really fun stuff. I'll see you next time.